This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 9th of March 2021. So Norman, let's talk today about who gets vaccines when. And let's talk about it from a global perspective because we've been talking a lot in Australia about phase 1A, phase 1B and all that sort of thing. But really, we have virtually no virus at all in Australia and it's running rampant around the globe. And as we were saying yesterday... When the virus is running rampant in poorer countries, there's a high likelihood of variants popping up that could cause problems with the vaccines that we've got. So Ruth has asked us, would it be better for Australia to vaccinate ourselves first and then turn our attentions to helping poorer countries get vaccinated or to prioritise vaccinating people in poorer countries first and then vaccinating Australians second? Well, there is a way through this, but it's politically fraught. One is that you could really go and make sure that all border workers, that's everybody, airport workers, airport catering workers, airline crews, etc., and their families and households are all immunised and preferably with the Pfizer vaccine. So it works quickly and it's high performance, hopefully against the variants and higher performance than Astra. Also, if you were to immunise um, Australians before they come back home, harder, much harder to do then Australia is pretty well protected with our contact tracing and so on. And we've got time. And therefore, you could, in theory, divert to countries around us at an earlier stage. The problem there is we would have to actually go into those countries and help them implement. It's not enough just to dump Pfizer at their door and hope that it actually gets there. We would have to devote resources to helping, like we did with HIV, by the way, to helping those countries implement prevention and implement immunisation campaigns. Many of them are pretty good at it, but they probably need help to do that. So it's not just the vaccine, it's the services in order to do it and the cold chain, which is quite considerable. So, yes, you could. And it makes public health sense internationally. If you could suppress this in countries where it's running rampant, and have fewer variants being thrown off, then you would actually make a big difference. But if you think about Indonesia, it's a huge country with a vast population, and it would require a concerted international effort to make sure Indonesia gets enough doses and implements them. And then you've got the Pacific Islands, some of which are very competent at doing this sort of thing, and some of which might have problems. It's not straightforward. Australia is a rich country, but it's not a particularly big country on a global scale, would us diverting our vaccines really make that much of a difference? Well, it would make a huge difference to the Pacific Islands, where the populations are small, and we could certainly deliver enough vaccine to really get great coverage in places like Fiji, Tuvalu, Solomon Islands, and so on, because the small populations, and we can certainly devote enough vaccine there to get really great coverage. The issue is Indonesia, which has got a vast population, as I said, and a chaotic health system in some parts and some of the islands, massive archipelago. So the question is, what do you do about Indonesia? How do you help Indonesia? The sort of doses we could give would be a little bit of a drop in the ocean. It would require other nations to help out um, and other suppliers to help out. The World Health Organization has said since the very beginning of the pandemic that viruses do not recognise borders, which of course they don't. We're all humans. We've got the same biology. And COVAX is a, a global access program that's meant to create more equity 
with vaccine distribution globally because it is very much sort of every country for themselves without something like this. How does COVAX work and is it enough? Is Australia How, how involved is Australia in the COVAX uh, distribution? We are a donor to COVAX. Um, and we'll be both a donor. We've been both a donor of money, and we will be a donor of vaccines because we've ordered more vaccines than we need. So we will eventually unload vaccines to our neighbours. The deal with Covax through CEPI, which is the um, organisation which got a lot of this vaccine development going, is that you donate money, and in return for that money, you as a country get access to vaccines, but also a proportion of that money will go to buy vaccines for poorer and low-income countries. That's how COVAX works. And they're already delivering a significant number of doses. And and the World Health Organization, I think over the weekend, announced 20 million doses quite soon going to low-income countries. The World Health Organization does work bilaterally. So it does, in theory, help countries implement immunization programs. This is a bit of a different program than usual. So normally it would come in a single-dose vial. This is multi-dose vials. We know the problems with that. And luckily, though, the Astra vaccine does not require any fancy cold chain. So that's vaccines. But let's talk about treatments for COVID. And one of the the substances that people have been talking about, at least a lot on social media, is ivermectin and that perhaps this uh, it's an antiparasitic that could be helpful for treating COVID. Uh, there's been some new research into that. What's it found? Yeah, it's basically a, a randomised trial and the randomised trial just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, 500 patients with mild disease and symptoms for seven days or fewer and enrolled last year and followed up through December. So some received ivermectin, some received, you know, half received ivermectin, half received placebo. And uh, amongst adults with mild COVID-19, a five-day course of ivermectin didn't significantly improve the time to resolution of symptoms. So, you know, and, and the whole idea here is that you would use these interventions early before it becomes severe disease. And does ivermectin make a difference? No, it doesn't seem to from this randomised trial. So it's not the wonder drug that some people were sort of hoping it would be? Not on the basis of this trial. There'll still be people who argue the toss, and there are a few trials around that seem to make a difference, but they're all, they've been done with different endpoints and different designs, and it's just not clear. But at the moment, it doesn't look as though it has a dramatic effect. So we're getting lots of questions from our audience about variants. Erin's saying, is there a limit to the number of variants that usually arise from a virus like coronavirus? And how? what sort of time frame are we looking at? Do new variants potentially just keep arising and we're just going to keep needing ongoing immunisation? New variants arise every time, mutations arise every time the virus multiplies. So every time it multiplies, it makes a mistake, if you like, and that mistake produces a slightly different version of the virus than the one that's been before. Now, for the first many months of the pandemic, those variants didn't seem to make a a difference except one. Um, I always forget the name, I think it's called D614G, something like that. It was more infectious and took over, not a huge amount, but enough for it to become the dominant form of the virus. So there's millions of mutations all the time. And as I said in yesterday's coronacast, when you're immunocompromised, you you produce more virus in your body because you're not producing the antibodies to control the virus. And therefore, more mutations are occurring as the, as the virus mutates. And then evolution will select for the mutations that resist the antibodies just by the play of chance. And millions of these viral particles mutating, there'll be one or two that are resistant to the, to the antibodies, and then they survive preferentially. So 
the question is, how often does that occur? That's the important one. How often do more contagious ones occur? And how often do ones that go around the antibodies and the vaccine, how often do they occur? And nobody's got the answer to that question. But there'll be lots of them. Will there be millions? You know, in somebody's body, maybe. Well, will they survive? Not all of them. There'll, there'll only be some relative to the billions and billions and billions of viral particles that are circulating in the world today. So that mutation's called D614G, and I believe that some scientists um, have nicknamed it Doug because it's got a D and a G in it. <laughs> yeah, and the one that's vaccine-resistant is called Eek. Eek. <laughs> so, and we've got Emily asking about the Brazilian variant. She says, we've heard a lot about South African and UK variants. Of course, we're using place names again, and we shouldn't be. But Emily says, what do we know about the variant from Brazil? What we know is, is how it behaves. So we know, we spoke about this a few weeks ago in this town called Manaus in Brazil, where people were resist, where had coverage in terms of the they'd been infected, 76% had been infected with co- the SARS-CoV-2, essentially the Wuhan virus, and people were getting reinfected with the Brazilian one. So it seems to be what they call an escape variant. So in other words, it is resistant to previous antibodies and probably resistant to vaccines, but it hasn't been as well researched. It's called P1, by the way, and it hasn't been as well researched as the South African variant, but it does look as though it's at least partially vaccine resistant and probably more contagious, and it's starting to pop up around the world. And Vivian's talking about just that. She says, just listen to Friday's episode on variants. While the science nomenclature is better for experts and sort of avoids the impinging on countries of origin, for us mere mortals, says Vivian, the UK, South African, Brazilian, Tokyo, etc. naming is much easier to remember and distinguish them. So what do we do? Well, we use both, just trying to be proper and not victimise one country over another. But what you've got and just coming back to that earlier question about how many variants there are, these variants, whilst some of them are spreading, like the South African variant, they seem to be popping up spontaneously around the world. In other words, the environment in which COVID is circulating is sufficiently similar around the world that the evolution of the virus is operating in the same way. And the, the analogy that I've used before on CoronaCast is there are marsupials in South America that are not there because marsupials spread from Australia to South America. They popped up in South America because the environment was similar and evolution went in the same direction. It's called convergent evolution. And um, that's what's happening with the virus. Provide the, the environment that's the same, immunosuppressed people, vaccines, antibodies, then the virus responds in the same or similar ways. Yep, to come back to our first point, humans' biology is humans' biology no matter where you are in the world. But to put on top of that social variants like behaviour, as we're seeing in the United States, then you're starting to get problems. Well, that's all we've got time for on CoronaCast today. We love your questions. You keep sending them in and we love it. Send some, send some more into us, abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs> 